Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The following podcast contains explicit language, including the words, well, you'll just have to wait and see. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of March 15th, 2021. On this week's show, we're going to talk about March Madness and the road to the Final Four, which this year is about avoiding COVID-19. We'll also discuss The Eyes of Texas, the song the University of Texas plays before and after football games, which has become the subject of heated debate at the school because of its historical connection to minstrel shows. And we'll assess the life and career of marvelous Marvin Hagler, the middleweight boxing champ who died on Saturday at the age of 66. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm the author of The Queen and the host of Slow Burn, season four on David Duke. Also in D.C., Stefan Fatsis. He's the author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. And also with us, Slate staff writer, the host of Slow Burn, season three and the upcoming season six. Get hype. Joel Anderson. Hey, Joel. Hey, good morning, everybody. Check out uh, the link that I just sent around. Mm, okay. We're doing this on the air, We're huh? doing this in real time. In real time. Can you, oh. read, the, can you read the headline and the uh, subject? Wow. It's like, this, it's like this story was created just for me. Did you all assign this story because of me? But anyway, the headline is, How to Win Your NCAA Pool. The subhead says, Act like a hedge fund manager and pick Houston to win it all. I am elated. That would be more exciting to me than even TCU winning a national championship, to be honest. So this is a story that we re-up every, that we re-up every year where the premise is we're going to identify the team that the general public <laughs> most undervalues, mm. that the general public most disrespects, mm-hmm. that the general public yeah. most hates on. Mm-hmm. And tell you, the readers of Slate.com, that you should pick them to win your bracket because they're the most undervalued asset. And that this year, that team is the Houston Cougars. Everybody thinks Gonzaga is going to win all the like prediction systems, all the ESPN.com tournament challenge people. And Houston is like considered to be very, very good by all of the like advanced numbers, the analytics. They're one of the top few teams in the country. But only like 2% of ESPN.com users think they'll win the tournament. And so, Joel Anderson, I don't know if this is the year that they're going to win, but this is the year that Houston is the most undervalued compared to their their I, I would argue quality. that Houston, Houston, in terms of program, institution, and city, is perpetually undervalued. <laughs> and at peril to anybody else that underestimates us. But, uh, yeah, I mean... For people that didn't grow with Fosslam Jamma, it is almost surreal to see that uh, my Cougs are back in this national moment. Shout out to Kelvin Sampson. We thought his career was over. <laughs> I mean, I know, I know that you know he probably shouldn't have been making those illegal phone calls at Indiana, but I mean, Indiana, don't, don't you kind of wish you had him back now? And no, there was no collusion or coordination here. I had sent this link to Joel in real time. He had no idea that this even existed. 
He encourages me. I know people get tired of me talking about Houston, but Josh encourages this. So if you guys want to blame somebody, <laughs> you send your, you direct your emails to Josh, okay? All right, let's uh, transition into our conversation of all of March Madness, including Houston, but not just exclusive to Houston. And let's flash back to March of 2020 for a moment when basketball, or more accurately, the lack of basketball was the thing that forced a lot of us to reckon with the fact that the world wasn't normal then and was not going to be normal for a very long time. The NBA went on pause, college conference tournaments got shut down one by one, then the whole NCAA tournament, men's and women's, got canceled, depriving the NCAA of hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue and depriving sports fans of an annual source of joy. Now, a year later, our ritual is back and the money is back. Uh, we've got the conference tournaments, the cutting down the nets, the bubble teams, the bid thieves, the selection show, the brackets, and soon the Cinderella's and hopefully some buzzer beaters, as long as they're not by St. Bonaventure. But hmm. the world still isn't normal, and this tournament will not be either. All of the men's games will be in Indiana, the women's in Texas. It's possible that not every team that got bracketed in will make it to the opening tip. Virginia and Kansas men's teams both had to shut it down during their conference tournaments due to positive COVID tests. And they could be replaced in the field if they don't test negative repeatedly in the coming days. Stefan, we talk pretty much every week about the moral compromises that sports forces us to make. I think we'll probably talk about that in every segment that we do today in some way or another. I am really excited about this tournament. I'm going to watch a whole hell of a lot of it. It's going to be fun. But they are really piling on the moral compromises this year. Yeah, I mean, I'd argue that the tournament might be more morally indefensible than usual, but at least it's morally indefensible in an actually new and noteworthy and newsworthy way. Uh, I watched the bracket reveal show on CBS, and I found myself really torn between the usual feelings of, on the one hand, whoa, Colgate, only one loss. There's a team called the Antelopes in the draw. And on the other hand, maybe someone should have at least noted that Kansas and Virginia were booked for opening games on Saturday instead of Friday so that their players could have an extra day to rack up the requisite number of consecutive COVID-free days. Uh, the specter of a deadly virus causing forfeits in an NCAA tournament being played in isolation bubbles in a single state was treated kind of just like another quirk of America's favorite quirky and unpredictable big event. Can Grand Canyon upset Iowa in the first round was given the same sort of, you know, moral importance as will COVID keep defending champion Virginia from showing up at all. I mean, just listen to this. The sequence. reason Virginia is a defending champion is because there was no tournament, no tournament last, last year. <laughs> right. So let's listen to this sequence among Greg Gumbel, Seth Davis, and Clark Kellogg on the CBS show. Seth Davis, what stands out to you? I'm loving this 12 and 13 matchup here. Both those guys march on. I like UC Santa Barbara in the Sweet 16. And down here, the set's up well for USC. Remember, Clark, Kansas has had some COVID issues. Shout out to the Ohio Bobcats because the last time they got to the tournament, 2012, our son Nick was part of a Sweet 16 run, and they started as a 13 seed. So maybe some good omen there. Clark Kellogg did almost let him finish his sentence about Kansas <laughs> and the COVID issues, Joel. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's like uh, it's almost like we you know one of those like cursing buzzers or whatever when you're on air and they're just trying to you know blurt out the, the blurt out the curse word. And I guess COVID is like the curse word in this instance. But yeah, I'm like I'm kind of like Zion, uh, Josh, in this instance. Did you see what he said last night when they asked him about the tournament? Trick question. Duke's not in it. I don't care about I'm it. Not, 
I'm not interested. That's right. But no, I mean, but, but more seriously, I mean, you know, March Madness has always been our biggest compromise as college sports fans. It's the moneymaker that, you know, makes the, that allows the NCAA to do what it does, right? Like this almost nearly billion dollars a year uh, makes it possible for the NCAA to keep this little cabal going on, uh, this amateur athletics cabal going on. And, you know, in a year where the pandemic is still an ongoing issue and a few places are easing up on some of these earlier restrictions, the tournament just reminds us that we're still not back to normal. We're still a long ways from that, but the games must go on for college athletes who have limited say and absolutely no representation in this matter. And think about how they're being subjected to this unprecedented arrangement where they're isolated from their classmates and family members. It must undergo like these uncomfortable testing processes that we've all surely seen by this point, right? Like, you remember it was, I guess, a couple of weeks ago that Draymond Green talked about how particularly hard it was for NBA players who have, like, money, you know, leverage in their relationship with their owners. Like, they, they t- he talked about how difficult it was for them to go through this process every day, getting tested, going to the gym. Imagine how that's magnified for younger players who are also presumably trying to complete their classwork, Right. And so now basically we're in a situation where the players are going to be living in an NBA style bubble. A lot of teams are going from their campus or from the conference championship sites directly to go to Indianapolis so that they don't risk, uh, you know, infection or missing a game with the coronavirus outbreak. So it's just I mean, look, man, we've seen the, the largest motivating factor in muscling through a season is if you really want to. And they're basically just counting on wearing us down like we knew that this was ridiculous from the start. A few months ago, when we won this show, we were saying, there's no way they'll be able to play college basketball, right? That's crazy. That, how could they do that? It's logistically impossible, and it's going to create outbreaks all over the country. And then it would happen in the middle of the season. You know, Some team would have to sit out games, or a player would miss a game, and we'd bring it up, and then we kind of forget about it. And now they've made it to their showcase, and that's all that matters. So they can cash their check now. So, I mean, Josh, you know, if these, if these organizations and institutions don't want the virus to be a real impediment, it doesn't have to be, you know? Joel, you're not looking on the bright side, man. At least this year, the players aren't going to miss classes because they can still go to their classes. Oh, that's right. (laughs) They can take the classroom with them wherever they go. Exactly. That is a great point. The reason that players, a big reason that they want to go to to college to play basketball is to make it to the tournament. And so this is an end goal and a finish line for the players too. Let's not pretend like they're being dragged there kicking and screaming and and don't want to play in these games. There is a lot of like interest and excitement and enthusiasm from all corners from fans. Well, wait, Josh, I, well, I don't want I should interrupt you, but I mean, come on. Do, do we really know if the players if if the players said they didn't want to do this and this was uncomfortable, do you think we would ever hear about it? I mean, some teams have opted out and decided not to play this year, you know, more on the women's side than the men's side. And a lot of the teams that did were ones that didn't really have much of a chance to play in the tournament, um, ones that, that didn't have great teams. I don't think we've heard or seen examples of teams this year that are doing really great where the players are like, you know what, I'm not, I'm not into this <laughs> anymore. Um, you might be right that there's a disincentive to really speak up and ruin everyone's fun and be like the turd in the NCAA punch bowl. But I think I would gather that for a high percentage of the players, they want to be playing and they want to be in the tournament. And I just wish that I'm like willing to go along with it. Like for all that it's like messed up and that it shouldn't happen. I'm willing to 
go along with it. It brings a lot of people not just revenue, but joy. Um, but I just wish they had done just a few, like a few things differently to make it um, a little bit less morally compromised. Like the conference tournaments, they didn't really need to happen, and they didn't need to happen so close to the start of the tournament. It in, it actually imperils the tournament and imperils the cash cow by increasing the chance that there's uh, you know COVID spread am- among teams. Does it really matter compared to the big tournament? Just like don't have the conference tournaments or like make them earlier in the calendar to give teams a little bit more time off. Well, I mean, right. I mean, they the, there's no reason that the that the NCAA tournaments had to start have to start on particular days, right? They could have built in the buffer after the conference tournaments. I mean, if they weren't going to cancel the conference tournaments, which were played also for revenue reasons. And some in some cases, there would be arguments made that for they were played for competitive reasons too, because some conferences played so few regular season games, um, either because athletic directors decided that it was a bad idea to do a lot of traveling. I mean, Colgate, which we can talk a little bit about, played 15 games, their 14 and 1, 13 of those games were against the same four schools. I think actually their first 12 games were against the same three schools because of the way that their conference decided to schedule this. So I was actually surprised when I looked at the schedule and realized, oh, they're going to start the tournament like this Thursday after the selection show on Sunday. Why not build in an extra week so that Virginia and Kansas and other teams presumably wouldn't be sort of going down to the wire testing players to see if they can get seven in a row? Why not make sure everyone was healthy before they go to the bubble? Well, I mean, because this is part of our, you know, you know, national routine, right? Like it happens now. I mean, you know, this is why this is muscle memory. Like this is the way we do it, and we can. The only adjustments we can make are for the you know in the moment, like if things affect us, right? Like, they, but presumably they just felt like, well, we're just going to play our way through it, and whatever happens at the end of it is what happens. Well, they did. They did make some adjustments, Joel. Like the first two rounds are Friday to Monday instead of Thursday mm-hmm. to Sunday, and that's like oh, wow. doesn't. Well, look, it doesn't seem like a small thing, but it it does kind of contradict what you just said like they can change things if they want to well, right. and they did change th- they did change at least a small thing well i mean but again why not i mean i don't you know i'm not I'm, i guess i'm not quite as caught up in you know the calendar of this right because i mean you can just sort of the whole enterprise is the problem not when it happens and, and like i said it's more excusable for nba players who have a collective bargaining agreement and who have a union representation than it is to put college basketball players through this to make them basically live out of a suitcase i think somebody mentioned that like rick Pitino. Uh, who, you know, is back in the tournament again. Good coach, maybe not such a great person, but he's back <laughs> in the tournament with Iona. And they said that when he went to the conference tournament that he brought like a shitload of, you know, luggage because they weren't going back home. Well, I mean, presumably the players are having to do the same stuff. The calendar doesn't make it much, it's not as a big a deal for me as it is the fact that the players are having to go through this like cumbersome process just for our like, you know, our our entertainment. Like it just seems unconscionable, but like we've just made a series of unconscionable decisions throughout the year related to the pandemic and sports programming. And this is just another one. Well, let me, let me say this, Joel, and and see if you agree. Like there, there's kind of a cliche in sports that, and this is in sports where you get paid above Mm -hmm. the table that 
you'd play the games for free and you get paid to, to practice. And mm-hmm. I feel like the players went through all of this stuff that you're talking about during the yeah. season. Like Stanford, they weren't at home for a huge, like a huge chunk of time because of right. rules in the in the county. Um, you know, Stefan mentioned Colgate, but we can talk about Michigan going on a long COVID pause, about um, all sorts of schools that had to deal with all sorts of shit throughout the entire season. And the tournament is kind of bringing that stuff to light because it's the time when America pays the most attention to college basketball. But mm-hmm. I still feel like for all of the slog that all of these players had to go through from the time that school started until now, that this feels like more of a reward than a punishment. It's like, oh, I have to go on the road for like a couple weeks now. It's like, I don't feel like the players are going to be that upset about that, given all of the stuff that they had to go through the entire season to get on the road to the Final Four presented by CBS. If you want to get off the hook and feel good about like in a tournament, Josh, you can just Well, look, you you're going to you're gonna, you're gonna be that way when, when Houston makes the Sweet 16. You're going to be in your, uh, you know... Oh, of course. I'm a hypocrite. I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. I've got my Foss Lama Jamma Texas Tallest Fraternity shirt ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this this feels like the the least problematic of everything that's happened so far in college basketball. You know, they're they're isolating the players and the teams in individual hotels. They're grouping the early rounds in one or two gyms, right? I mean, th- this is all as probably, you know, as as cautious as anything that's happened so far. You know, Duke's, Duke had to drop out of the tournament because of a COVID test in the ACC while they were playing in this tournament. I mean, the, 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 the amount of travel the teams suffered during the pandemic was crazy. I mean, and only some conferences really ratcheted it down, like Colgate's. You know, they played, their schedule was three teams, and they played them four times each in the regular season. Are you doing guerrilla marketing for Colgate? A I am. Of, a lot of Colgate talk here. <laughs> Where is Colgate located? Which, Colgate's which, in which, uh, which... upstate New York. Is it really? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Good to yeah. know. Yeah. So, I mean, I was just kind of watching that show thinking, oh, the Ivy League should have just had a tournament after canceling the season, they should have had like a tournament and like the winner with a record of two and O, you know, could have made it to the, uh, why have a tournament at all? Just draw straws. And yeah, I I mean, I guess the thing is, is that like, I mean, look, I acknowledge that if you're a player, this is what you play for, right? Like this is the only part of the season. That sounds like a concession. All right, continue. No, no, it is a a concession. (laughs) But remember earlier in the year when we said the only way they can do this is if they have a bubble, but they can't have a bubble because they're not professionals. Like that is, that is wrong. Like we should not subject college athletes to this. Well, you're talking about the full season. Yeah, right. But now we're talking about it now like it's just, oh, well, they want to be there and it's just as a this is the way you do the tournament. Come I on, Joel. College basketball college basketball players have been going on the road and staying in hotels for two weeks at a time since they were ten years old. Yeah. This is I mean, no yeah. different. Yeah, they've been doing that's right. They've been doing they've been doing it. <laughs> they had a lot of practice for a pandemic <laughs> by staying in hotels uh, throughout their teenage years. That's correct. I don't want to be the fuddy duddy here. I'm sorry. I don't want to be the person that spoils the fun. I am going to watch the tournament probably. You know, I mean, but can also like but you're going to be just, frowning the whole time. Well, no, let's just talk about like, <laughs> l- l- like, let's be honest. Like, we don't know anything about any of these teams. Like, I did you watch college? Ba- the, I watched one college basketball game this year from start to finish, and it involved Cade Cunningham, who is the best NBA prospect in college basketball. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, I don't give a shit about you know Gonzaga's 
fourth best player. Who pretty good? I don't know who. I don't know who's. I know Baylor is. You know the number two overall seed. They're in the Big Twelve. That's my school. My alma mater's top rival. I don't know anything about them. Here's what, they, I, they, here's what they, I know, Joel. Colgate, if they came in here Colgate, and sat down at my kitchen table, I would know who they were. Here's okay. what I know: Colgate is coached by a Penn alum, so I'm rooting for Colgate. All right. Okay. And I Here's misspoke. Up. I said the Ivy tournament would have been two and it would have been a three and no record to get the Look, tournament. All I know is that Gonzaga's fourth best player is Andrew Nembhard, the transfer from oh. Florida. That's all I that's all I know. Oh, okay. That is all. Who's but third best? Third best, I think, would probably be Drew Timmy, the center. And then you got yeah, okay. Kispert. Corey second. Kispert and Jalen Suggs. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Don't don't pretend. <laughs> I, I mean you're falling squarely into the American tradition of only paying attention to March Madness at the uh, start of March Madness. So I think it's all good. Before we move on, I wanted to also just mention the women's tournament. That bracket hasn't been announced yet as we record this podcast and talk about weird COVID situations. Michelle Vopel of ESPN noted that in the Missouri Valley women's tournament, Bradley won the tournament. Drake, whom it played in the final, was without four players, the head coach and two assistants. Drake only had eight players, one assistant coach available who acted as the head coach. The regular season champion was Missouri State. It withdrew from the tournament rather than playing against Bradley in the semifinals because Bradley had a tier one positive COVID-19 test. Uh, We'll talk about the, the women's tournament on a show coming soon. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about now former New Orleans Saints quarterback Drew Brees. How should we remember Brees? How will I remember Brees? To hear us talk about it, you have to be a Slate Plus member. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Two months ago, one of the first questions Steve Sarkeesian fielded as the new head football coach at the University of Texas was about the school song, The Eyes of Texas. Reporter asked Sarkeesian his thoughts about the song, which traces its origins to a minstrel show around the turn of the 20th century, where students, white students, likely wore blackface, and asked him whether he'd open a dialogue with his players who maybe didn't want to sing it. Here was Sarkeesian's response. You know, we support that song. We're going to sing that song. We're going to sing it proudly. Not so fast, coach. A university committee last week released a 58-page report about the eyes of Texas, concluding the intent of the song was not overtly racist in offering a long list of recommendations for how the university could move forward. Josh, in a piece for Slate last week, 
Tyler Valeska pointed out the players won't have to stand on the field after games and sing the song because of, you know, their First Amendment rights. But what does it say about Texas that it had to go this far? I think what it says is that there are a bunch of different constituencies that the school is trying to satisfy here. I can think of three. Number one is donors, rich white donors, namely. And Texas Tribune did a really good job with public information requests getting emails that were very explicit in saying, we are going to pull our seven-figure um, donations if the school doesn't affirm the song, say it's the school song, and stand behind the song. There were a bunch of people that said this, and that is a group that school administrators want to keep happy. Um, the second constituency is alums, fans, whatever, and I would reckon that opinion on the eyes of Texas among that group is more varied. And I'm sure there are lots of people who have the same opinion as the donors, and I'm sure there are lots who think the song should go, and there are some in the middle. And then the third group is the athletes, football players most prominently, the ones who came out against the song in the fall of last year who said they um, wanted it replaced, that said they didn't want to sing it, predominantly a black football team that doesn't feel like the song represents them. And then you've also got football players who might consider going to the school. And so potential recruits and how the fact that the song that originated in minstrel shows might play to a, you know, a black 17-year-old who's considering going to Texas um, and considering going to lots of other schools in the country that maybe don't have a school song with that history. And so when you look at all of those different groups, um, you're not going to be able to satisfy all of them or most of them even. And so that's why you end up with a you know 60-page report that gets into all of the kind of, and I thought it was a good report actually, that gets into the, all, of the, all of the nuance and history here. And Stefan, in reading the report, what I came away with is I actually think it's just despite it being a good report and I think it being nuanced and smart in a lot of ways, I think it's actually going to be used as a cudgel against the folks who want to get rid of the song because of the way in which it says um, the lyrics aren't explicitly racist. It wasn't written with a kind of racist intent. And so the powerful people connected to the school can now have a document and point to it and say, see, the song isn't racist. Right. And I think it's important to step back here and talk about some of the history and what the committee concluded. Because I didn't know anything about the history of the Eyes of Texas. I could not have, you know, sung a word of the Eyes of Texas. I couldn't have even told you that it is sung to the tune of I've Been Working on the Railroad. So it was written in 1902 by a student. The problem with it, um, as has been argued, is that the, the phrase, the eyes of Texas are upon you, um, was inspired by the president of the University of Texas at the time. And it had been reported for years that, that, that the president, William Prather, had borrowed it from Robert E. Lee, the Confederate war general. The committee found that, no, actually, there's no evidence that Lee used the phrase, but there was a different Confederate general, John Gregg of Texas, who reportedly once told his soldiers, the eyes of General Lee are upon you. I'm not sure that's exculpatory in any way, but it is 
you know, it is revelatory and it is historically accurate and interesting. But I think you're right, Josh. The, 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 I think there are two issues of the cudgel. One is that, hey, this is just history. There was no explicit racial intent. Look at the lyrics. They're not explicitly racial. And two, yes, there's a First Amendment issue here because Texas is a public institution. And the conclusion was that you can't stop players from not singing the song or even staying on the field while the song is being sung in the stands the real problem becomes that it's a pressure point on players. It's a pressure point on members of the band that are told they have to play it. It's a pressure point on athletes who already feel that they are there but for the grace of the coaches and the football administration or the athletic department. I got to keep my scholarship. If I don't sing this song, what's that going to mean? There's a lot of pressure on them to participate in this. And as you, you heard at least one of the players say that alums had said, well, you won't be able to get a job here in the state if, if you keep this up, if you keep protesting that song, which is a kind of a scary thing to hear when you're 17, 18, 19 years old. You know, Even if that's not a threat that has any real heft behind it, it's still a sort of a scary prospect that these rich, white, wealthy you know, te- uh, boosters, Texas fans might remember you 10 years later when you're in need of a job, right? But you're kind of going back to Josh's point about all these different constituencies. So I'm sort of of a different constituency, right? I'm a native Texan. I've grown up here, didn't live anywhere else until, you know, uh, I was like 24 years old. And I don't want to pretend to speak for all black Texans here, but uh, my friend Bamadi Jones has pointed this out more than a few times. So I feel comfortable going ahead and say it. He points out that I'm probably in the last generation of, of black Texans who remember a time when the school was seen as deeply and explicitly oppositional to black folks, right? So that's talking about the team and the institution. And that's from creating standardized testing to keep out black people. Like the University of Texas is, was instrumental in creating standardized testing so they wouldn't have to admit black students. They created a separate law school at Texas Southern University here in Houston so they wouldn't have to admit black, uh, aspiring black law students, right? And I also grew up at a time when it was breathed about, talked about a lot. I was born eight, nine years after UT fielded the last all-white national champion. When I was going to college, there was a big fight over affirmative action in the state, and one of the school's law professors had said something that black, you know, black students didn't have the capacity to, to get into law school without a, a affirmative action. And so there's like this history here that Texas is not, you know, like you would think that Texas would want to offer a handout and say, hey, look, maybe we're, we're dealing with this, this history and we want to do something different. And the institution is, but you see that there's like this very powerful group of people that don't want anything to change. And I'm not, you know, silly, like I'm, I'm from the South. I know that Texas isn't alone here. There are a lot of places and a lot of institutions that are begrudgingly grappling with these racist traditions and foundations. It's not like you can commit from Texas and commit to Texas A&M and Mizzou and avoid this, right? But some kids are just going to have to decide, much like many black Texans over the years, aspiring college students, aspiring black college students in Texas, you're just going to have to decide, is this the strain of institutional racism that you want to deal with? And, uh, you know, I'll be interested to see what, what happens going forward from here. Yeah, it's a great point about the school being a flagship institution of the state and representing everyone in the state to a degree, not just the people that went there, not just the people that root for the football team. And you mentioned Texas A&M, that same Texas Tribune piece mentioned 
that AM commissioned a study about how uh, alumni donations would be affected if they took down a campus statue of a former university president and Confederate general, Lawrence Sullivan Ross. And according to that study, they found that they could expect a short-term drop, but long-term fundraising would likely remain unaffected. Um, we haven't seen or heard anything about a similar study being commissioned by the University of Texas, but it would surprise me if it hadn't been at least conducted informally, thinking about, all right, if we um, get rid of the song, how will that affect donations? How will that affect you know, the future of the university from a financial perspective. This is like obviously what they're thinking about. But, um, you know, the other thing that it brings to mind to me is thinking about like the 1619 project and this idea of like, okay, the constitution was written by racists, by slaveholders. And the constitution has kind of been transformed over the years, both through amendments, through judicial rulings, and just through kind of different, interpretations of the original words there to, in some ways, be more inclusive. But for the eyes of Texas, I mean, that, that sounds like very grandiose to compare the, the U.S. Constitution <laughs> to the eyes of Texas. But, you know, I think you were right, Joel, to start with the Sarkeesian line, because he was signaling there in his first press conference, mm-hmm. I'm not actually interested in the nuance here or in reinterpreting this song or in thinking about the ways in which it could be, it has been used over the years to be more inclusive and has been used in in protest. He was signaling to the donors and the boosters and the alums, like, I'm with you. And so all of this like nuance in this report, Stefan, again, it feels like the the people that really need to hear that and need to understand that are the ones that are the least interested and really wrestling with it. That's right. The nuance is beside the point. The point is that how do you react to history? How do you react to the telling of the story of this song? And should this flagship institution for one of the biggest states in the Union be defending this at a time when it is a loaded and dangerous proposition to be kowtowing to the forces of wrong. I mean, it's not hard for, it wouldn't be hard for Texas, all risks acknowledged, to say, you know, the history of this song is disturbing to an important segment of our student body and alumni base, and we think we can do better as an institution moving forward. If you read through some of those emails that the Texas Tribune got a hold of, I mean, they read like a Fox News segment. They are racist. Less than 6% of our current student body is black, wrote Larry Wilkinson, a donor who graduated in 1970. The tail cannot be allowed to wag the dog. Yeah. Well, here's here's another one. It is sad that it is offending the blacks. I was just going to read that one, Joel. Go ahead. Yeah, no. It, yeah, it is sad that it is offending the blacks. As I said before, the blacks are free, and it's time to move on to another state where everything in their favor Look, I'm a 42-year-old black man from the South, and let me tell you, I know when someone is saying go back to Africa in a mm-hmm. highfalutin sort of way. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, the other, other emails attacked the head of the committee, a professor who's black, 
suggested that the committee was promoting Marxist ideology, suggesting that this was a product of, saying that it was a product of cancel culture, calling students snowflakes. Texas needs to decide, you know, the University of Texas needs to decide where they stand. Are they in favor of sort of educating these people and saying we don't really need your money that badly? We're a, we're a better institution than that? Or are they going to capitulate to the forces that would keep propagating this kind of garbage? Well, I'm, I'm glad you said it like that too, Stefan, because like we never use this term in reference to this group of people, but I'm just going to go ahead and say it. This is a reflection of a culture of entitlement, Right. A boosters, boosters run amok. Like these are people that feel that they own the program, that they own a public institution and that their wishes should be heeded no matter what, no matter who it offends, no matter how many other stakeholders have problems with it, that their word must be acknowledged, that their wishes must be acknowledged at least. And this is great like for, for Texas in terms of raising money and keeping the program awash in cash. That's what makes it one of the wealthiest college athletic programs in, in the country. Texas has no problem raising money. That's great. But it's not great in building a cohesive program, a tight ship with one captain. And that's how you end up with Steve Sarkeesian and not Urban Meyer, right? I was going to read one more Josh um, email from a, uh, a law school graduate named Stephen Arnold, a retired administrative law judge. He wrote, UT needs rich donors who love the eyes of Texas more than they need one crop of irresponsible and uninformed students or faculty who won't do, and here's the money line, what they are paid to do. Dog, look, look, this is what I have to say to that. Would you rather appease the next Vince Young or would you rather appease some 70-something former oil baron, right? Like, for you to pretend that Vince Young or Earl Thomas or Ricky Williams were not worth more money than Texas and somebody who wants to write into the school to complain and cut a, you know, $30,000 check, like, get real, your perception of who, who has the value here is backwards. I guess in fairness, it's worth saying that we don't know how the school responds to these people. They could think that these folks are cranks and want to tell them to go F themselves, even though they probably shouldn't. But I think for the school's long-term future, it does probably make more sense to you know, try to appeal to the next Vince Young. But the thing that's so kind of frustrating is that, again, I look at this report, I feel like it was done with care and intelligence. And I just feel like there is a universe that is very different from the universe we're living in, where there could be a really constructive conversation Mm -hmm. about this song and maybe a way to keep the song in some fashion if the people that are holding onto it so tightly would be willing to acknowledge its origins and the fact that it's like changed some over time and has been kind of appropriated by groups that, you know, have very different beliefs than the early folks who sang it at a minstrel show. But there's just no interest from the Steve Sarkeesians of the world, it seems, despite what Sarkeesian might say in the future. Like what he said in that press conference cannot be forgotten or erased. I mean, Steve Karsakishin, who has a black wife, by the way, you know what I mean? Like, that doesn't have to mean anything, but it, I mean, it's an interesting footnote uh, in his response to this thing. That is, that is interesting. But you don't see the kind of self-reflection that would be required for there to be the possibility of true kind of growth and, and change and inclusivity 
And so the whole thing just feels like it's been poisoned and it is kind of depressing to see the possibilities here feel kind of tantalizing and it just feels like it's always just going to be out of reach. Let me ask you guys a question. Is this only a football thing? Is this song after basketball games? Is it everywhere on campus? The tradition, I think when the donors write in, and correct me if I'm wrong, Joel, it's about football. Like, to, no, no matter, like, where and how, it, it is, I, th- I think, embedded in the university in a bunch of different ways. But it's really about football. And it's about, we want to see the players after the game mm-hmm. sing the song together. Like, that's what they really care about. Yeah, I think that I think that's a fairly rare representation of it. Real quick, did you guys see this tweet from Stephen Godfrey of Banner Society about this situation? Because I think it's like one of the best ways to sort of sum up like what's going on in Texas. Uh, the tweet is Texas confused as to why they're not Oklahoma is doing an Ole Miss themselves <laughs> confused why they didn't become Alabama all those years ago, <laughs> right? That's Which is good. I mean. Yeah, that's some that's some that's some very deep cut shit right there. But like, the, the the bottom line is that Texas has put an artificial cap on itself. Like, give Texas credit; it cares far more about its principles than winning football. Oklahoma, I'm sure, loves this. But just keep in mind, Texas has won one national championship since desegregation. Okay, and it took one of the best players I've ever seen in my life to make it happen. They've won seven conference titles in the last forty years. OU has won six straight titles just. Big Total is just itself. So, you know, Texas is clearly okay with living like this. Like, this is what this is important enough to them that they've made it an issue and that they hired a guy in part because he said that I will defend the honor of this song. Like, I'm going to make the players stand up and, and stand at attention for it after the game. And that clearly was more important to them than bringing in, to, than wooing Urban Meyer, who might have turned them into something other than Oklahoma's, you know. A stepchild, essentially. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On April 15th, 1985, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, his full legal name, fought Thomas Hearns in a boxing ring assembled on the tennis courts at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas. It was Hagler's 11th defense of his middleweight title. Hearns had moved up after winning welterweight and light middleweight belts. Both were known for their punching power, and they came to the fight with the same strategy, to brawl. The first round of Hagler-Hearns is considered one of the most relentlessly savage three minutes in boxing history. It's like something out of a Rocky movie. Hagler and Hearns threw preposterous 165 punches combined. Hagler was bloodied. Hearns, it would turn out, broke his right hand, hitting Hagler on the back of the head. Both men were staggered. The fight couldn't possibly last much longer, and it didn't. Hagler won on a technical knockout two minutes and one second into the third round. Let's listen to the call from Al Michaels and Al Bernstein. 
Cody. It's Hagler full of blood is a great call. Marvelous Marvin Hagler died on Saturday at 66. Joel, I'm old enough to have watched what was maybe the last golden age of boxing. Hagler, Hearns, Roberto Duran, Sugar Ray Leonard. They all had distinct styles and personalities and they all fought each other. But my God, Hagler was terrifying and indomitable. What struck you rewatching the Hearns fight? Well, it's funny you said uh, it's Hagler full of blood because that was like, that's such a great line. I mean, you can see how like Al Michaels is a legend in the game, right? Another thing is that, okay, so my whole life I've known that Marvin Hagler was a middleweight. I know that middleweights are not big men, but it still never registered to me that Marvin Hagler wasn't like the size of Miles Garrett. You know what I mean? Like he was five foot nine and 170 pounds. Like that's like... Tariq Cohen or like something body a little bit smaller than Tariq Hill. But his reputation and name are such from that fight that I just assume size for him, right? You were like 159 pounds, wasn't it? Yeah, right. Like, I mean, he's a, he's a small dude, you know what I mean? But like you just, because of that fight, because of his reputation, you would think he was a much larger man, right? Uh, but no, he's, he's a middleweight. He's not a huge guy. Um, and it was one of the rare prize fights where the boxers fought like they hated each other. And I'd wondered if there was some sort of backstory to that night that maybe I hadn't read or that's something that we weren't privy to. And then I I saw one interview online uh, from 2014 where Hagler said, he didn't like me and I didn't like him. And so I dug a little bit more and it seems like this all stems from a fight that got canceled in October of 1982 when Hearns called off their fight because he had a, a, a hand injury and Hagler was pissed, and he accused him of turning down $2 million and complaining about his baby pinky. So for a guy that, like, fought everybody and took immense pride in fighting everybody and going through them, and then for Hearns to sort of back out, I guess I could see how that might have inspired some enmity. But, like, just you usually don't see two great fighters, Josh, like, engage in a brawl at that level of fighting, right? Normally, it's a little bit more... I mean, it's the sweet science, but, like, that was not that at all. Yeah, later we'll get to it, but this was totally different from the Hagler-Sugar Ray Leonard fight from 1987, which ended up being Hagler's last fight. And Leonard was, like, very dismissive of both Hagler and Tommy Hearns and, like, saying that Hearns was an idiot for getting in and and brawling... (laughs) With Hagler like that. And and Leonard fought the fight that I guess Hearns should have, kind of dancing around and getting in there with some some quick flurries of combinations and not really hurting Hagler, but scoring points against him. But yeah, in this fight, neither guy was really interested, it seemed like, in self-preservation or in, yeah, just like kind of boxing and, and point scoring. It was all about trying to knock the other guy's head off. And there's something thrilling about that. Um, there's something dangerous about it. There's something kind of scary but thrilling. It's like the tension of boxing and it's all really visible there. And, you know, Stefan, you alluded to this. I guess you guys both did. The thing that really strikes me in thinking about Hagler and what makes him stand out is the look, the aesthetic, mm, the shaved mm-hmm. head. Yeah. Like he was mm-hmm. a guy. Before people shave their heads. He was, you know, I've heard about like Michael Graham, the Georgetown guy from early and John Thompson's tenure as being a guy who shaved his head and that, you know, you know, obviously preceding Michael Jordan, but um, he being a guy that was kind of like an icon for that. But Hagler was a decade before Michael Graham and just the look, like, you know, how solid he was, how he did look bigger than he was, the 
you know, how he fought left-handed. For me, I guess, you know, being younger and sort of hearing about him a little bit more as a legend than somebody that I watched in real time, there's a certain way, Stefan, in which, like, when I think of a boxer, I kind of think of Marvin Hagler yeah. and what I he think looked that, like and what he did. He's like a computer-generated version of what a boxer would look like, right? Right, and, and his backstory kind of is too, Joel. Um, you know, he grew up in the, in the 60s, late 50s and 60s. His mom took the family out of Newark, New Jersey, after the riots in 67 and 69 there, moved up to Brockton, Massachusetts with some relatives, drops out of school and <laughs> so that he can box. And he's taken under the wing of these two, you know, these two boxing promoter guys that also run a construction firm and Hagler works for the construction firm. I mean, there's like a Rocky element or a Rocky Marciano element. It was the same hometown as Marciano. And Hagler was sort of a, a local brawler, a local fighter in Massachusetts. And then he moves to Philadelphia. He doesn't really get his chance after he turns pro, and it takes him like six or seven years and a bunch of fights before he gets uh, a crack at the middleweight title. I, I think about this, just reading about him in the last few days, which is always fascinating. Like, whenever, just, you know, a peek behind the curtain, everybody, like whenever we decide on a topic and we share these articles with each other, and whenever it's boxing, it's like all these great you know, long profiles from the 80s from Sports Illustrated with William Knack and like Rick Riley and these like these great stories about boxing that you don't really see today because people don't care about boxing like that. But also, also Sports Illustrated isn't what it was either. But it was just so clear in reading about this stuff and watching some of his interviews that Hagler was frustrated that he sort of never ascended to the level of fame and popularity of Sugar Ray Leonard or even Duran and Hearns, you know, like, him changing his name to Marvelous wasn't just because it was his nickname. He was pissed that TV announcers wouldn't use his nickname. So he was like, well, if I legally name myself Marvelous Marvin Hagler, the announcers are going to have to say it. And his reasoning was actually sort of sound. He said, well, they say Sugar Ray, that's not his name, so why won't they say my name, right? And to your point about how he was just like a local brawler, like, I guess I did not know a lot about Marvin Hagler before this because he didn't win a title until his 37th professional fight. Mm -hmm. He was already 33-2-1 at the age of 23. That's absurd. Fighters don't fight like that anymore. They don't fight that much. I mean, so like he was just sort of a grinder who happened to have been incredibly talented and turned himself into a boxing phenom and icon just through like his relentlessness, the relentlessness we saw in that fight against Hearns, but like it wasn't meant for him in any other way. And that's why that fight was useful in elevating him. It like, it like that fight, he won and it elevated him, but it meant something. It was like Gaddy Ward or like Ali Frazier won. You know what I mean? Where it like the, the fight took on some larger significance. It means something when you say guys are fighting like Hagler and Hearns. And that just elevated him in a way that none of the rest of his career was ever able to before that. A lot of times we hear athletes and teams talk about being underestimated but they don't really mean it. It's a kind of motivational ploy that's almost empty at this point, just because it's said every day and, and every week by every everyone in every kind of context. But Hagler was a guy who believed rightly that he was underestimated, and he legitimately used it for motivation. And so I don't think we should look at the fact that that kind of self-talk and and that kind of it's become a cliche we shouldn't allow that 
to you know move us off of the sense that this actually did define him and motivate him and define his career in a sense. I mean, he had to turn pro and wasn't able to maintain his amateur status long enough to make it to the Olympics. And he was very jealous of guys like Sugar Ray Leonard who used the Olympics as a springboard for fame. Like he had to just turn pro and start making money. Um, and so he wasn't able to have a career like that. And it it meant that like you guys said, he had to grind in Boston and Philly, fighting every couple of months to try to build his name and to try to do so unsuccessfully. You know, felt like he got jobbed in various ways, both outside the ring and, and in the ring, and was indomitable, um, maybe because that's how he was, and maybe because he had no choice. Like he just mm-hmm. needed to keep going. Yeah, and 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 I and I think that the that the the notion that Hagler felt he was underappreciated was sort of chip on the shoulder motivation, but it was also borne out by the early opportunities that he had to win the title and become you know a name. I mean, his first title shot was in 1979 against Vito Antofermo, and Hagler beat the shit out of him, and it was ruled a draw. The referee says to him before the judges announced the verdict, congratulations, now stay facing this way until they announce the decision and I raise your arm. Uh, a draw goes to the title holder, Antifermo kept his The referee title. doesn't get a vote. Incidentally. Yeah, the referee does not, <laughs> not get a vote. Sometimes the referee gets a vote. And then in 1980, when he wins the title, yeah. he destroys this guy, Alan Minter of Britain, and the crowd turns on him because it's it's at Wembley Stadium in London. They're throwing debris and bottles into the ring, and he doesn't get the adulation in the moment that a title winner deserved. He was very upset about that, and I heard him talk about that in an, in an interview later. He said, you know, I didn't get that moment that everybody, when you become right. a champion, you get that moment. They give you your title, you raise your fist, and it means something, and that's something a fighter remembers for the rest of their life, and he was denied that. And also, you know... He, he, had, to be, he had to be escorted out of the ring by cops. Right. And also, you know, there was a racial subtext to the Alan Minter fight that Alan Minter had said something along the lines of, I'm not going to let that black man beat me or take my mm-hmm. titles. So, you know, there was, there was some other stuff going on there, too. That, um, and then, I, I, you know, I just... It, it sort of, it, it, in some ways, it sort of reminds me of Hank Aaron, right? I don't, I, maybe this is just not an appropriate analogy, but like a guy who was great for a very long time, but was sort of outshone by all his contemporaries. You know what I mean? Like Hank Aaron never got to be Willie Mays. He never got to be, you know, Jackie Robinson or whatever, right? Like he's not remembered in quite the same way. But through sheer virtue of like their workmanlike approach to the to their craft. And like their their undeniable greatness, they turned themselves into legends. But like it wasn't meant for them to be that. They didn't necessarily have the personalities or the like, you know, the machine behind them. But you could not deny them their greatness, and that's ultimately what makes them stand the test of time. Like it didn't have to be about hype, you know. They didn't need it. They ended up taking taking the fame for themselves. Yeah, I think that's actually a good analogy. And I think the two things that distinguish Hagler and don't quite fit in there are that he does have that standout, you know, 10 minutes against Hearns and the way that like Hank Aaron never had the season where he had 60 home runs or something. Hagler does have that one time when he was the kind of, he, he had that career defining flurry. Um, but also 
you know, Hagler was the champ for five years and beat all comers and did have his moment, even if maybe he wasn't as famous as Sugar Ray Leonard. I think he was acknowledged by the world as the greatest, as the champ. And so he had that time. And the thing that I find the most fascinating about him and the most surprising, both knowing who he was, but also just knowing the history of boxing, is that he lost this fight to Leonard. And I think there is a dispute. I don't think like it's clear that Hagler got jobbed, but I think it was like legitimately a close fight and you could go either way. But he lost to this guy who he felt like was not his equal, who he felt like was this pretty boy, who he felt like didn't try to fight him, who he felt like had outshone him undeservedly for his entire career. That That's the recipe for a rematch. Like what fight was like better primed and set up for a rematch, both in terms of like fans wanted to see it, both in terms of like both fighters wanted it to happen, in terms of the money that would be available. And Hagler was like, you know what? I'm done. And he stuck yeah. to it. Well, wait, wait, wait. Hold on. Because Sugar Ray, he did want a rematch and then Sugar Ray dawdled, right? And and then and Hagler was like, well, forget this. I'm done. I'm not doing it anymore. But he wanted a rematch from, from Leonard and Leonard didn't want to give it to him. Yeah, but it's a it's definitely a fight that would have happened eventually yes. if Hagler would have um, wanted it. And he, everything that we know, I think, Stefan, mm-hmm. I mean, I, like Joel, like I've learned more about Marvin Hagler in the last 48 hours than I knew in my whole <laughs> life, and I'm glad that I did. But everything that I think we know about Marvin Hagler, if you would have erased my memory and, said, and, and asked me after reading all of that stuff, you know, what would happen? I said, hundred percent he would have fought Sugar Ray Leonard. And he just moved to Italy, moved on with his life, said, I've got money and I've got my health. And like, that's an amazing thing that, mm-hmm. that, that, that happened. Yeah. Rick Tellender did a piece in 1990 for Sports Illustrated on Hagler and caught up with him in Italy. And there are a couple of quotations in that piece that are real that really do stand out and, and demonstrate how Marvin Hagler was a perceptive and rational boxer. He, you know, he he on the one hand recognized that he was supporting his trainers and others who had a stake in him continuing to fight, but he also stood up and said, I just don't want to do this anymore. I'm I'm I've got, you know, I'm just read this this one quote. Hagler said, God, I wanted to beat him so bad, meaning Leonard. You know that, Pat. He's talking to one of his trainers. Um, But for now, for the first time in my life, I'm happy with myself. I'm retired. I considered the $15 but it didn't come close to changing my mind. Financially, I'm in good shape. My health is good. My brain is good. One more fight, and you never know what might happen. I'm not going to win an Oscar, but I'm getting better. In five years, maybe I could be a world-known actor. That didn't happen, but he did make movies in Italy and stayed there for for several years before uh, moving back to the States. And then in that same piece, he also says this. I saw Joe Lewis at the door at Caesar's Palace just shaking hands and that left a bad taste in my mouth. Then I saw Jersey Joe Walcott doing the same thing in Atlantic City. Great champions, that keeps me moving. Meaning he didn't want to end up that way. He didn't want to end up an old adult boxer having to greet people at the front of a casino. He wanted to have a life. No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, he had, as we, as we acknowledged, as Josh said earlier, I mean, he had to look for something. He looked like somebody that should be famous, even in or outside of a boxing ring. And, uh, you know, there was this movie. He was in a, he was in a series of movies called Indio, um, which I believe the sec, the, the sequel 
was about somebody going into the Brazilian rainforest or the Amazon rainforest and helping natives to stave off lumber companies or something like that. But we got, they, look, we, we can just play a brief clip of the uh, trailer for Indio 2. It has all the action of Rambo, all the power of Commando. The world has to know what's happening here. It's the thrill-packed feature action fans are waiting for. I want those Indios. Marvelous Marvin Hagler returns from the original Indio. The jungle is shrinking. Sometimes, to do any good, you gotta be bad. There's no turning back. Boxing superstar Marvelous Marvin Hagler is back. Charles. <laughs> <laughs> Left wing environmentalist tree hugger Marvin Marvis Hagler, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, you know, fighting to keep the, uh, the, the rainforest pristine, right? I felt a little bit lost having not seen India one, but I kind of got the, <laughs> I kind of got the idea. Yeah. Well, you know, they said it did, it had all the power of Commando, and I can confirm that Commando was a very powerful movie. It was one of my favorite movies growing up with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Radon Chong, by the way. But uh, yeah, I don't, I can't compare it to Rambo. I didn't see Rambo, but uh, clearly it's a, you know, I mean, that's what he left boxing to go do right there. So I don't. <laughs> I mean, I I'd say I have a little bit more of a dim view of his retirement because uh, it didn't. I like he said he he wasn't going to win an Oscar for and that's for damn sure. I don't know, man. He made forty million bucks. He went to Italy, lived there for a few years, made a couple of movies. Yeah. Seems pretty good. Oh, that I mean, I look. I can't knock that hustle. It's a lot of fun. I just you know it, this that second chapter wasn't quite live up to that first one. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. And now it is time for Afterballs. And let's celebrate one of only two boxers to fight marvelous Marvin Hagler three times. And one of only two boxers to fight marvelous Marvin Hagler and be named Sugar Ray. Sugar Ray Seals was the only American boxer to win a gold medal at the 1972 Olympics in Munich. He beat Bulgaria's Angel Angelov, a good name. Seals was undefeated going into his first fight against Hagler, which Seals lost by unanimous decision in 1974. They fought again three months later, kind of in the the typical cadence of Hagler's career. This time it was a draw, the first time Hagler had left the ring without a victory as a professional. Third fight came a little more than four years later. This time, Marvelous Marvin won decisively by TKO in the first round. They would get together again in 1984, this time for a benefit for Seals, who nearly lost his eyesight in the ring. Again, like Sugar Ray Leonard, who uh, retired for a long time because of a detached retina. According to an article by Chris Benedict on the website, The Grueling Truth, that benefit for Sugar Ray Seals in Seattle featured not just Hagler, but Muhammad Ali, Ray Boom Boom Mancini, Larry Holmes, Michael Spinks, and Sammy Davis Jr. 
alas, it was poorly attended. The whole thing lost $26,000 oh, expenses. That is so sad. Good Lord. Oh. In happier news, though, Seal's still around. He's alive. His vision is better now. He's coaching boxing in Indianapolis and reportedly wears his Olympic gold medal around his neck everywhere he goes. <laughs> you know that you would, too. I think Joel's oh, wearing his. Uh, aren't you wearing the medal for the fastest ten-year-old around your neck? No, I, I don't. I don't have it. I don't have it with me at the moment. But I, I have a. I do have a, a certificate that I can show if anybody wants any proof <laughs> about how it went. Uh, let's not lose focus here. Sugar Ray Seals. That's who we're uh, paying tribute to. Stefan, what is your Sugar Ray Seals? On our bonus segment last week for Slate Plus members, and if you're not a Slate Plus member, you should become one. We talked at length about Joel's basketball slang pack meaning a blocked shot. Josh and I, you'll recall, were unfamiliar with the term from our childhoods in New Orleans and Pelham, north of New York City, respectively. I played pickup into my 30s in Brooklyn, never heard pack. I asked some of my college buddies who grew up in Long Island, Connecticut, New Jersey, Philly, no pack. But listeners confirmed that Joel down in Houston was not alone. We received pack sightings from pretty much everywhere except the Northeast. And then listener Pete Zambito, a music professor at the University of Missouri, wrote in to say that in his hometown on Long Island, Locust Valley, quote, this was definitely a term used, and he confirmed that pack meant to push a shot back into someone's hand. One of the challenges in tracing the history of slang is that it's often passed on orally and sometimes doesn't make the transition into mainstream print media. In the case of Pact, I found plenty of hits on Twitter for Pact His Shot and Shot Got Pact, but a search of a couple of big newspaper databases turned up only a couple of examples. Both were from 2008. The first was from the Arizona Republic, which asked a high school baseball player named Jake Saylor for his most embarrassing sports moment. I was playing basketball when I was nine and took the last shot to win the game, but got packed, he said. The ball hit me in the nose and made it bleed. Classic pack. The second example was from a middle school basketball player in Bradenton, Florida, named Alexis Stout. She scored eight points in her team's 22-20 championship win and defended the game-tying attempt. I just tried to stay with her, Stout told the Sarasota Herald. I almost packed the shot when she let it go, but I missed it. Joel's new friends, Jake and Alexis. Welcome to Hang Up and Listen. Then we got an email from listener Steve Webster. Steve traced packed to a different sport, volleyball, specifically to the International Volleyball Association, a co-ed pro league from 1975 to 1980 in which Wilt Chamberlain played a season. Steve explained that the league adopted the verb to six-pack because men on the teams decided to give a six-pack of beer to anyone who spiked a ball so hard that it hit a woman in the face. Okay, I'm sure the women athletes of the International Volleyball Association loved that. Steve said the shortened form packed would come to mean hitting any defender in the face. The first print citation that I found for six-packed was indeed a feature about the International Volleyball League in the LA Times in 1975. The male IVA players, still not quite used to the mixing of the sexes, have decided that if a guy smashes a girl in the face with the volleyball, he scored a six-pack, Dwight Chapin wrote. In other words, he's awarded a six-pack of beer. 
I'm going to pause here to say that the male player's response to not being used to the mixing of the sexes was to assault the female players. This was not a healthy league. The beer requirement in six-packing would be dropped, but the term stuck. University of New Mexico freshman volleyball player Mindy Hale Loves College went the lead in the Albuquerque Journal in 1990. The other day, she got six-packed. No, Mom, she didn't drink 72 ounces of beer, but the effect was about the same, a sort of numbing of the brain. A little casual brain injury uh, action there. I didn't find any citations for the clipped packed in volleyball, but the transition seems obvious. She got six-packed, he got packed. It also makes sense that the term could have migrated from volleyball to basketball. Adaptation is a very common thing with slang, and in this case, it's logical, tall people smashing a ball in a downward fashion. So back to basketball. Props to packed, Joel, but my term of art for a block that doesn't leave or barely leaves the shooter's hands, stuffed, is way more prevalent in the databases. I found dozens of examples, the oldest dating back to 1954 in a piece in the Salt Lake Tribune about a high school basketball game. Paul Menlove, the 6'10 Montana giant, hit for 24 points in the fray and probably saved 10 more points. He stuffed several shots up into the bleachers after the ball had left the hands of East shooters. If you want to quibble and say that's more of a conventional block than a stuff, Here's a report from a high school game in 1956 in Nebraska. Raggy was guarding the bucket and several times stuffed short shots right back down the throats of the shorter warriors. That is an excellent citation right there. You can visualize exactly what happened. And then there's this one from the Louisville Courier Journal in 1970. At the last possible moment, McDaniels stuffed the shot back at Stringer and got a jump ball call from the official. Again, contextually, you really couldn't ask for more. An AP photo caption from a 1980 Bucks Celtics game read Milwaukee Bucks Bob Lanier is stuffed on his shot by Kevin McHale of the Boston Celtics and fouled by Robert Parrish. The photo shows a textbook stuff, McHale's hand on the ball as Lanier attempts to shoot. There are plenty of examples, Joel, from more recent times. Michael Holly of the Boston Globe writing in 1998 about Kenny Anderson. Jim McElvain stuffed his shot right back in his face. Oh, that had to hurt. Tom Spusta of the New York Times reporting in 2000 that Stefan Marbury drove to the basket and was met by the fellow all-star Glenn Robinson, who cleanly stuffed his shot. Here's a good one from 2006 from Jonathan Feigen of the Houston Chronicle, with Yao Ming going up for a dunk, Nate Robinson, who appears much shorter than the height listed, met Yao above the rim and stuffed his shot with spectacular authority. And one more, a recent one from a 2019 Washington Post profile by Candace Buckner of Mo Wagner of the Wizards. If last year rocked his self-belief, Wagner hasn't showed it, Buckner wrote, during a recent practice, he trapped Rui Hashimura in a bad position beneath the rim and stuffed his shot twice. After sending the second one out of bounds, Wagner barked at the rookie, gimme that shit. Which makes me wonder about the use of shit or weak shit or get that weak shit out of my house in basketball. But that is a, an etymology for another day. Well, you certainly met the moment here, Stefan, but I... I uh, and I appreciate your attempt to assert your northeastern supremacy. Attempt. In this. this is pure yeah, data. Your attempt, Joel, but I'm not mean, an attempt. Stuffed, stuffed. I mean, given its origin, that's some George Mike and ass terminology right there. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, Bob Pettit, Bob 
Bob Pettit level ass, you know, talk. Oh, you got stuffed. I mean, okay, great. I mean, Pac really captured a moment. It was zeitgeist there in the 80s and early 90s. And I think all my Pac heads understand that, you know, that's that's the preferred term for us hoopsters. You know, you know it is, it is also it. true, Joel, that the coolest slang does not migrate to the mainstream. So there you go. With that having been satisfactorily adjudicated, that is our show for today. Our producer this week was Margaret Kelly. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. Please subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps us out. And don't you want to help? I think you do. For Joel Anderson, Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.